You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. The scripture for today will be 1 Samuel 15, verse 10 to 23. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me. He has not carried out my instruction. Samuel was angry. He cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet with Saul. But he was told Saul has gone to Camel. There he has set up a monument in his honor and has turned gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the the Lord's instruction. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ear? What is the lowing of cattle I hear? Saul answered, The soldier brought them from the Amalekite. They spread the best of sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribe of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you in a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce and plunder and do evil in the eye of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord. Saul said, I went on a mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekite and brought back Agad, their king. The soldier took keep of the cattle from the plunder the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heal is better than to the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the Lord, the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nadesh. So we've been following the storyline of this young king, uh, King Saul. And Saul actually starts out a fairly decent king. Do you remember two weeks ago when we looked at his coronation and how they went to install him and they couldn't find him because he was hiding in the pile of luggage? Do you remember that? That's kind of endearing, isn't it? I mean, my heart kind of goes out for this guy. Like he's, he, he appears to be humble-hearted. He seems to be modest. He's not swaggering his way to the throne. And at least in the beginning, he appears to be a pretty decent monarch. He's 
courageous. He is often kind to his enemies. Uh, He shows a level of commitment to God. But something begins to happen. Something begins to happen to Saul. A change begins to occur in him. We saw it last week in the story we looked at. We see it in this week today that Saul slowly begins to descend to become this self-centered, tyrannical monarch whose life eventually spins completely out of control and ends in self-destruction. And so if you're a careful reader, and if you have a sensitive heart, you should be asking yourself, what happened? What happened to this guy? And I think that's pretty, a pretty relevant, pretty modern question for us to ask. We have all maybe asked at times how seemingly good and decent people could somehow end up doing really awful and sometimes even wicked things. The last few years, we've seen some prominent and well-respected Christian leaders, people that we trusted, people that were of good repute. We've seen them exposed for doing really terrible things, and we've seen how their followers have even excused and often justified even when they have been hurting really vulnerable people. What happened? What happened? And maybe you'll even ask this question about yourself sometimes. Maybe you have done something that you don't even want to admit to yourself. Or maybe you're in a relationship that seemed to start so good and there was so much promise in it, but somehow over time it's unraveled to the point where now the two of you have done cruel and shameful things to each other and you are asking, what happened? What happened? Well, today in the story, we're going to look at that. What happens? What happens to human beings like Saul, like you, like me, when we end up doing really hurtful things that we never wanted to do? And the answer to that question is, at least for today, self-deception. Self-deception. Self-deception is the capacity of human beings to hide the truth about themselves from themselves and is the root of so much of the evil that we end up doing. So we're gonna look at this today, what's going on in this story. We're gonna look at why it happens and then how God wants to save us from the sin of self-deception. Okay, so first let, let's talk about what is it. Now I'm gonna to work towards a definition, but before I do that, let's just dig into this story a little bit and see what's going on here. What is it that Saul did that made God so upset? God had given Saul a command. It was a pretty tough command. We see it in verse 18. He said, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament history, you know that the Amalekites were a really ruthless and wicked community of people who were guilty of a lot of violence and abuse and that had engaged in some pretty, pretty horrific atrocities. And so God at this point wants to bring his judgment upon the nation of the Amalekites. And he wants to use Saul and his army to do it. And so he commands them to go out and wage war against them. And he tells them not to leave a single person or a single animal alive. And then what Saul does instead, we read in the chapter before this, is he goes out, he wages war, and he keeps the best of the livestock, the best of the cows, the best of the sheep. And he also keeps alive the king of the Amalekites, because in the ancient world, that was a really common ancient practice as a way of 
demonstrating your superiority over foreign kings and kingdoms. This action of Saul made God so grieved that he says he regrets making Saul king and he will now make another king instead of him. Now, before we talk about this, let me just kind of cut straight. This is hard stuff. This is, some of you are saying, this is why I don't read the Old Testament, right? <laughs> some of you are like, this is why I don't like the God of the Old Testament. And I get that. This is really difficult stuff. And here's a couple of things I want to say about this. First of all, I thought Elizabeth did a great job last week exhorting us about how to actually be careful in the way that we read these challenging Old Testament texts. It's very easy for us as sort of 21st century, enlightened, progressive people to sort of take our view of the world, our ethnocentrism, and read the text through it, bring judgment over the text because of our particular cultural way of things, seeing things. We need to be really careful. This is an ancient, ancient text that we need to understand and try to get into the context to really do justice to it. Now, that being said, when we look at this text, what we see is something really disturbing. They did from time to time, God did order Israel to annihilate um, other nations. It happens when they came into the promised land and the other time it happens is here with the Amalekites. And this is probably troubling to some of you. It is to me. Well, I've been really helped by Chris Wright, um, who's a wonderful Old Testament commentator and missiologist who actually will be here in the spring um, for a missions conference. And Chris Wright says that the occasional times this happens are, are meant to be singular acts of the display of God's sovereign justice. So he says this, the conquest of nations was a limited historical necessity, not an ongoing paradigm for social attitudes or behavior within Israel towards foreigners in general. So what he's saying is in this unique instance, God is using Saul and his army to bring about an act of judgment against horrific evil and injustice in the world. And you still may find that hard to stomach. I get it. We could preach a whole sermon about that. I almost did because I think this is so challenging. But here's just what I would want to say to you. If you are a person who takes evil seriously, who takes injustice in the world seriously, and I think most of you are, if you're that kind of person, then you probably should also take seriously the idea of a God who stands against the evil and injustice in the world and who brings judgment against it and occasionally from time to time will actually step in and take action against the Amalekites or the Stalins or the Hitlers of the world. That the Bible teaches about a God who stands against what is wrong and evil and he takes action against it. And that was the nature of God's command to Saul. And this also explains why God didn't want Saul to take any plunder, no sheep, no cattle, nothing, no gold. When almost any nation goes to war, this is true in the ancient world, it's true today, maybe like one out of a thousand times a nation goes to war for an actual just cause. But for most of the time, nations go to war to accrue power and wealth and something for themselves. That's the way the nations wage war. But in this case, God says to Saul, yeah, I want you to go and wage war and destroy the Amalekites, but in this case, you will profit nothing from it. You will not gain one cent. You will not take one coin. You will not take one sheep. You will not take one cow. This is not about your military exploits. This is not about imperialism. This is about my terrible act of divine justice and you will not profit one cent from it, Saul. This is not for you to chalk up on your victory wall. This is not about you. Well, Saul went out and he ignored everything. 
He kept the best livestock. He kept the best sheep. He kept kept the best cows. He kept the king of Amalekite as a sign of his own superiority. He grasped after the plunder for himself. And here's what's so tragic about this, friends, that in waging war against the nations, Saul is behaving like the nations. And remember what the people said? Give us a king like the nations. Well, guess what? They've got him. A king just like all the other nations, waging war for his own profit and gain. So what happened, right? Like, what? It makes me so sad. I liked Saul, right? I liked him. He was so cute, hiding in the luggage, right? Like, like, what happened? How did this guy go from that to this? And what happens to us when we do things that we hate? Well, look at what happens in verse 19. Samuel asked him straight up, Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And look what Saul says. I did obey the Lord. Now, this is is a fascinating thing going on here in the Hebrew. Um, Those two words that I've highlighted there, obey, is the familiar, you may know this word in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word shema. Hear, O Israel, shema. And it's a Hebrew word. Hebrew is very flexible. It's not like English. It's quite literal. It's very flexible. And you can translate Shema in many different ways. You can translate it hear or listen. You can also translate it obey or heed. And so something really interesting is going on here in this conversation because Saul is saying, I did Shema the Lord. I did hear the Lord. And Samuel said, did you now? Because I don't think you shema the Lord. You heard, but you did not hear. You listened, but you did not heed. You shema but you did not shema. You knew but yet you did not know because you did not want to know. You suppress the truth for your own gain. That's what self-deception is, friends. This is how it begins. To know something, yet suppress the knowledge of what you know to be true about yourself because you do not want to know it. One of the most horrific examples of this happened at the end of World War II when um, General George Patton and the Allies went and began to liberate the concentration camps. And one of the worst concentration camps that they liberated was one in the town of Ordruf, Germany. They went in and 50,000 Jewish people were killed in this one concentration camp. And Patton went in, there were piles and piles of potties, and Patton was not a man of weak constitution, and it was said that Patton himself got sick just being there. But here's what was astonishing, is they went, as they went into the town, Literally, the town of Ordruf that the concentration camp was in and began to ask people about it, people said, oh, we didn't know that it was happening there. We never knew what was going on there. And so what Patton did is he took the people of the town and he brought them into the concentration camp to see what they said they did not know. And and they couldn't bear it. People fainted, people wept, people couldn't bear to see it. And the mayor and the mayor's wife of that town after being in the concentration camp and seeing what they saw, went home and hung themselves. And the note that they left said this, we said we didn't know, but we knew. We knew. To know and yet refuse to know. To hear and yet not heed. This is self-deception, the almost unlimited capacity of the human heart to hide the truth from itself for your own gain. Tim Tim Keller, who I heard that illustration from, says this, 
Self-deception is not the most terrible thing we do, but it's the reason we do the most terrible things we do. It's not the worst thing we do. It's how we end up doing the worst things that we do. Whether It's how decent people end up doing horrific things. It's how we justify things we know are wrong. It's suppressing the truth that is just too painful to admit. It's the capacity of humans to hide the truth from themselves for their own profit, for their own gain. This is what Saul did, and this is what all of us are susceptible to. That's what it is. Second, though, let's look at how it works. Like, we we should be really careful about this. How do we know whether this might be happening to you? Right? What are some of the behaviors that we see in Saul that we can watch out for in our own lives? Let's just look at them. First of all, what we see Saul doing is blame shifting. Verse 13, it's funny. Samuel sees Saul walking up and he, go, he walks out to him and he says, the Lord bless you. I did what the Lord commanded me to do. It's a little much, right? Um, Saul though, I mean, Samuel is great. He's like, if you did what the Lord tell you to do, what is this bleating of sheep that I hear in my ears? I'm pretty sure dead sheep don't bleat, right? And Saul's like, oh, right, the soldiers. The so- he, says, he says it twice. Did you notice that? When you go back and read the chapter, it was completely Saul. He told them to do it. He saw the soldiers. And in fact, in the Hebrew, he doesn't even say soldiers. He just said, he uses a third person plural pronoun, they. He just says, they, you know, they. I don't really know where they came from. I don't know how these sheep got here. It's just they, you know, they somehow, you know, brought them here. That's blame shifting, classic sign of self-deception. This is what we see in Genesis 3. You know, God accuses Adam, Adam blames Eve. God turns to Eve, Eve blames the serpent. This is a, a way that we are able to take, not take responsibility for our own actions by shifting the blame to somebody else. I wouldn't get angry if you wouldn't nag me so much. I wouldn't have to fudge the truth so often if you just didn't get so sensitive and upset about things. If you weren't so focused on yourself and your needs, we wouldn't fight so much. You know, it starts starts small like that. But psychologists will tell you uh, that when it comes to actual situations of abuse in relationships, Blame shifting is the number one sign that something really terrible is beginning to happen. In fact, it can get so toxic that the person who has been abused can end up feeling like they are actually responsible for their own abuse. This is how terrible and wicked blame shifting can become. So that's the first thing we see happening, blame shifting. The second thing we see is misdirection. When Samuel tells Saul, you know, you didn't obey the Lord, you took the plunder, Samuel's like, well, you just, you don't get it, man. You don't understand. Look at all, you know, we're doing this church service. We're having the sacrifices. You don't really understand what's going on here. It's you actually who don't, you're the one with the problem, actually. You don't understand. That's, that's misdirection. It is concentrating on the confusion or the weakness of the messenger uh, rather than the actual truth that's being communicated. You know, I was trying to think of an example of this, and then I thought of myself. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, I'll just be honest for a second. So um, this has actually been a pattern in our marriage. Well, Sarah will bring up something to me. She'll say, you know what? I really felt like that was really unthoughtful that you sent that email to the group without talking to me first. And, you know, instead of like listening and saying, oh man, you were right. 
I'll, I'll just kind of throw up my hands and say, you are so critical. You know, you're always so glass half empty. You know, why are you so negative? And actually, like, I was taking incredible initiative by reaching out to the group. And while we're on it, let's talk about all the ways that I'm such a wonderful husband. You know? <laughs> um, see, all of this is misdirection. Whether Sarah is critical or not is completely irrelevant to the point that she is bringing up. She is bringing up a hard truth that I don't want to hear, that I am often a selfish and unthoughtful spouse. It's just too painful to hear it. So I'll misdirect, make it about her instead, right? Another thing that we see Saul doing, religious justification. This is classic. Saul says, oh yeah, okay, we did take the best of the livestock, but it's for the Lord. It's so we can make a sacrifice to the Lord. We're going to have an amazing church service. Samuel, you should preach the sermon. It's going to be beautiful. Many people are going to sing lots of songs. They're going to take up an offering. It's going to be amazing. It's for the Lord. It is a sad reality, friends. And some of you, actually, who probably are not Christians, probably know this the best. Because we, people of faith, are often blind to it. It is a sad reality that religion is one of the greatest forces in the world for self-deception. Religion can serve as this massive cover. It's a way of deceiving yourself about what's wrong with you and suppressing the truth by pointing to some sort of moral or religious practice in your life. Why do we see so many religious leaders end up in the news? Just this week, what a horrific news hearing from France that leaders of faith Guilty of abusing 200,000 children since 1950. What happened? How does this happen? Because it's so easy to tell yourself, yeah, maybe there are some things that I'm doing wrong here, but look how much good is happening for the Lord. Right? Look how God's being honored. Look how much money is being given. You know? Look, look at how much kingdom work is being done. Yeah, maybe I messed up a little bit in these ways, but like I'm a Sunday school teacher. I'm, a, I'm an elder in my church. I go to church every week. I read my Bible. You know, it wasn't so long ago, I don't know if you all remember the Enron scandal, that enormous you know, financial fraud. I don't know if you knew this, but the two guys who were the top, two top executives of Enron, active members in their evangelical churches, right? Uh, these very same men, over, are the men who overestimated the company's value, who lied about it to their employees, and who made millions and millions of dollars on the back of those that they stole from. Good Christian men sitting in the pews just like these. Can you see how the slippery slope works, with the cover, especially with the covering of religion? You know, some of you are probably actually cheating in your business. But maybe you're saying to yourself, well, you know, at least I'm not the Enron guys. Like, I'm not cheating people out of millions of dollars. Well, what did the Enron guys say? Well, I may be cheating people out of millions of dollars, but at least I'm not killing people. I'm not like a mobster or anything. And look all this money that I'm making that I'm giving to the church. And what did the mobsters say? Well, I may be killing people, but at least I'm killing people who deserve it. Right? Um, it's not like I'm Hitler or something. And then what did Hitler say? I don't know, but he says something. 
because everybody says something because nobody says to themselves, you know what, I'm evil. Nobody says that because everybody can justify anything. And especially religious people can justify anything. Everybody starts out decent. Everybody starts out with good intent, but self-deception is what leads you to become the person that you hate. So take a look at these, family. Blame shifting, misdirection, religious justification. Do, do you see any of these things, behaviors in your own life? If you don't, you're probably deceived. <laughs> you're probably self-deceived. So I would urge you to pay attention to the capacity of your own heart to deceive yourself. Okay, so what do we do? If this is the way that all of our hearts operate, do you see why these stories are so good? They help us understand ourselves, right? So what do we do? How are we saved from this? How does God heal us from this? Well, let's just point out a few quick things here that we see um, in the text. First of all, if we're gonna be healed, we need accountable community. We need accountable community, right? Um, if you are trapped in self-deception, by definition, you cannot see it, right? Because you're deceiving yourself. And so what you need, if there's something that, if, that is hidden about you, from your, about your own character, then you need someone else in your life to point it out. I'm a big Seinfeld fan. So happy Netflix put Seinfeld back on Netflix. Um, and one of my favorite episodes is when Elaine... Um, Jerry and George and others are trying to convince Elaine that she is a terrible dancer and she refuses to accept it, you know, because she sees herself dance. She's, when she's dancing, she feels like, I'm an amazing dancer. And so what Jerry has to finally do is he has to catch her on tape and he sits her down on the couch and he plays the tape. She sees herself <laughs> dancing and she realizes, oh my goodness, I am a horrible dancer. <laughs> See, that's what real friends do. Real friends play you the tape, right? They help you to see what's true, that you're deceiving yourself. If you want to be rescued from self-deceit, the first thing you need is a willingness to be transparent and accountable community, to be open to people pointing out things to you that you don't want to admit. If, you just, if you're just kind of a churchgoer and you just kind of drift in to church services, but you don't actually enter deep into vulnerable relationships... And, and, and you don't want to let other people into your life and you don't want other people to see actually the way you live and the ugliest parts of yourself, you're toast. You're toast for self-deception. Saul actually had this kind of friend in Samuel. Samuel's always telling him the truth, but Saul can't hear it. And that leads us to the second thing that we need because we need not only accountable community, but surrendered humility. Over time, Saul just developed this duplicitous life. He decided, you know, there's certain things I'm going to obey, there's certain things I'm not going to obey. Certain things I'll follow to the letter, other things I'm going to fudge. And he just began to sort of make these decisions on his own about how God could be obeyed and how God could be ignored. And in verse 22, Samuel exposes this as blasphemy, arrogance, and idolatry. He says to him, you have decided when to obey and when not to obey. You've made yourself the authority of your own life and you think you can make it okay by giving God some cows? God doesn't want your cow. God doesn't want your sheep. God doesn't want your money. God doesn't want your sacrifices. What does he want? Obedience. He wants you. He wants your whole self, your whole life, everything you are, everything you have fully surrendered to him. That's the one thing Saul can't give himself. 
You know, being a follower of Jesus is difficult. This is not some like happy, clappy thing we're doing. And if that's what you think it is, don't try to be a Christian. Because being a Christian means to follow Jesus. And that's hard. Did you hear the Beatitudes that we just sang earlier? Did you hear Jesus tell you to turn the other cheek, to love your enemies, to take up your cross, to die every day, to live a cruciform life, to bring everything you are, all of your money, your morality, your sexuality, everything that you are under his authority? Did you hear the stuff that Lauren said about being generous? Who, restricting your disposable income so that you can give money away? Who, who does that? Jesus calls us to do it. It's hard. And this is not a salad bar where you can like, look at what's good and leave, leave the, those weird like chickpea things and just bring what looks tasty onto the plate. Following Jesus is not a salad bar. It's unfortunately you get to the restaurant and open and there's one thing on the menu, come die and follow me. That's it. And freedom from self-deception comes when you say to God, okay, I surrender fully, dying to myself. The demands, my demands, my agenda. I am not the authority of my own life. I'm not the captain of my own soul. I will not pick and choose what I want to listen to. I give you God, I give you me. And to do that, not just once when you're like 12 at summer camp, but every day of your life is the path to integrity and wholeness, because you refuse to wall off anything from God, but to surrender everything to him. Saul couldn't do it. Can you? Surrendered humility. And then one last thing, uh, grace-based identity. Saul, Samuel says something profound in verse 17. He says, man, you were small in your own eyes, and God made you great. Can't you see that, Saul? God made you great, not because of you, just because of grace. And in a way, you can see everything that Saul does as an attempt to make himself big. He wants to be great. He wants to be awesome. He wants to be a king like the nations. He wants to be like them. He wants to gather stuff for himself. He wants to have the praise of people. He wants to make a monument to his own greatness. This is an insecurity complex. He wants to be great. And Samuel says to him, Saul, don't you see? It's the Lord who makes you great. You don't have to make yourself great. You're secure. God chose you. God lifted you up. God made you king. Why are you trying to make yourself great through your own efforts when God made you great through his grace? Here's the question. Why are some truths so hard for us to admit? Why can't you admit that you have an anger problem or a drinking problem? Why can't you actually admit that you are cheating in your business and justifying it through your generosity? Why can't you admit that you have this propensity to sabotage your own relationships again and again? Why can't I admit, why can't I admit that I'm a, often a selfish and unthoughtful spouse? Because we all know deep down that we're small and that we're sinners and we're not the people that we aspire to be. And when something happens and when we're exposed as the actual sinners that we really are, we do everything we can to push it away and to suppress it because we do 
not want to be exposed and seen as the people we know deep down we actually are. That we're small. But here's the good news, friends. Yes, you are a sinner. But yes, God loves you and has lifted you up from your sin, forgiven you and made you great through Jesus, our Savior. It says in Hebrews 10 that Jesus came into the world and said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Here I am, says Jesus. It is written about me in the book, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus is the king that all the kings point to. And guess what? He's the only king that actually is great. But to paraphrase Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, he who was great became small so that we who are small might become great. Jesus gives us his righteousness, gives us his riches, gives us his status as the king to lift us up out of our smallness so that we might be great in him. And if you can grasp this, friends, if you can grasp it, that your identity, who you are, is not bound up in your performance or your behavior or your reputation or what people think of you or, your, or, or, or the fact that you're a good spouse or a good parent or a good worker, or, but, that, but that your deepest identity is grounded in the truth that you are God's beloved in Christ, made great through Christ. If that's who you know, who you are at core. And you can face anything, even the worst things about you. You can say, yeah, you know, I am an addict. I do have an anger problem. I do sabotage my relationships. I did cheat in that job. I do have a problem. This is who I am. I'm loved. I need help. See, to know the truth that you are loved, and that's your deepest identity, is to be set free, right? This is truly be set free so that you can invite the help you need, so you can cry out for grace, so that you can invite God to begin his true redemptive work in you through the Holy Spirit. So will you know the truth? Yes, you're a sinner, and yes, you're loved. Will you know the truth? That truth will set you free. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you give us these stories that we might know ourselves. What powerful psychology here, long before psychology was invented. And yet we see it right here in the text. We're so thankful that you love us so much as to give us stories like the ones of our brother Saul, that we might be saved from our own self-deception. So help us, Lord, to be those who fully surrender to you, who give ourselves, who know the truth that we are sinners, yet we are loved, so that we might be set free for the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.